Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 8, Episode 6. Last week, I wrapped up the story of the Judge Samson, who judged Israel for 20 years, then, in his final act, killed more Philistines than he had his entire life before that point. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm picking up in Judges 17 and working closer to the end of the book. And with that, let's get started. 17 kicks off with a man named Micah, not to be confused with the several hundred years later prophet with the same name. This Micah is much less known, but now it's his time in the spotlight. The way the text begins the story is a bit unusual. There was a man in the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. He said to his mother, The eleven hundred pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and even spoke it in my hearing, that silver is in my possession. I took it, but now I will return it to you. And I'm going to pause for a second. It may be mere coincidence, but eleven hundred silver pieces is the exact amount the Philistines promised Delilah just a chapter earlier. And in case you missed it, when it reads that his mom uttered a curse, that's generally interpreted as she was upset about it, but may not have yet known that her son was the one who had taken the silver. Unpausing. His mother said, May my son be blessed by the Lord. He returned the silver pieces to his mother. She said she would consecrate the silver to the Lord to make an idol of cast metal. She took the 200 pieces to a silversmith who made it into an idol of cast metal. This idol was kept in Micah's house, probably on a shrine, complete with an ephod and a teraphim. I've mentioned the ephod before, but as a reminder, it was a sleeveless garment worn by priests. As for a teraphim, that's a bit less known. This concept will be part of the deeper dive, so more to come later. For now, just know it's mentioned only a few times in the Old Testament, and this is the first. The general thought is that these were primitive Semitic house gods whose cult had been handed down from the earlier period of nomadic wanderings, essentially household idols. Back in the text, Micah had a shrine in his house. He also installed one of his sons as a priest. Then one of the most meaningful phrases in the history of the Old Testament, one that will make an appearance at the end of this book. In those days, there was no king in Israel. All the people did what was right in their own eyes. Then, a bit of a mystery, and the reason why we're told what we were about Micah. Now, there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, but he was a Levite. This man left the town of Bethlehem to live wherever he could find a place. He came to the house of Micah in the hill country of Ephraim. Micah said to him, From where do you come? The unnamed man replied, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to live wherever I can find a place. Micah then said, Stay with me, and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year, a set of clothes, and your living. Pausing again, that he would pay the unnamed man ten pieces of silver as a year's wages 
tells us just how valuable silver was. The 1,100 pieces mentioned earlier in the chapter that had been taken from Micah's mother and the bribe offered Delilah were the rough equivalent of more than a lifetime's wages for a priest. Unpausing. The Levite agreed to stay with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. At this point, Micah installs the Levite as his priest in his house. Then Micah reveals his motivation, saying, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me, because the Levite has become my priest. In those two stories, Micah, his mom Silver, and the Levite priest make up the entirety of Judges chapter 17. Moving along. Leaving Micah behind, at least for now, chapter 18 takes us to the tribe of Dan and a bit of a story I've mentioned before. We're reminded that Israel had no king in that day, with the implication being that the tribes were not unified and left to fend for themselves. Then, the text reads that in those days, the tribe of the Danites was seeking for itself a territory to live in, for until then, no territory among the tribes of Israel had been allotted to them. Which is a really odd thing to put into writing. Way back in Joshua 19, the boundaries of the land allotted to Dan by Joshua himself were recorded, a region that included Zorah, Elon, Ekron, among other places. And now, we're told that they received no allotment. My take on this, or better stated, how I reconcile it, is not that they received no territory, but instead they never managed to gain control over it. This was seen earlier with the most famous of the Danites, Samson, being in constant strife with the Philistines, despite in that period having been a judge for 20 years. In fact, the story of Samson never says that the land had any sort of rest, unlike the tenure of most of the other judges. In reaction to their inability to control where they'd been trying to settle, the Danites sent five men described as being valiant to explore and spy out places to relocate to. The handful of spies were from Zorah and Eshtile. When they came to the hill country of Ephraim, specifically to Micah's house, they stayed there. Now we're beginning to see why an entire chapter of Judges was devoted to Micah. All background information. While the five Danite spies were at Micah's house, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. So they went over and asked him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? The priest replied, Micah did such and such for me, and he hired me and I have become his priest. Then they said, Inquire of God that we may know whether the mission we are undertaking will succeed. The priest replied, Go in peace. The mission you are on is under the eye of the Lord. With this assurance, the five men went on. They would make it to Laish, where they observed the people lived securely, similar to the way the Sidonians lived, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing rich in possessions. Despite seeming to be Sidonians, they lived quite a distance from that place. The people of Laish were also not allied with Aram Damascus. Note the footnote in the New Revised mentions that in some ancient sources, Aram Damascus is not named, 
and instead the city is said to not have been allied with anyone. This is how the passage is rendered in the NIV, and essentially the same in the King James. This seclusion, of itself, is noteworthy. They were politically isolated. After this, the five spies returned to their home cities of Zora and Ashtail. The report given was much different than that of the spies centuries earlier, who reported back to Moses and the younger Joshua. This time, the spies said, Come, let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and it is very good. Will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go, but enter in and possess the land. When you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is broad. God has indeed given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything on earth. After hearing this positive news, 600 Danite men armed themselves with water described as the weapons of war and headed north. While on the march, they would encamp in Judah, at a place that would become known as Mahane Dan, literally translating to the Camp of Dan, a name it would maintain to this day, meaning when the book of Judges was written. The 600 would then march to the hill country of Ephraim, coming to the house of Micah. At this point, the original five spies said to the hundreds of others, Do you know that in these buildings there are an ephod, teraphim, and an idol cast of metal? Now therefore consider what you will do. All six hundred turned in the direction of the Levite's house and greeted him. While the armed six hundred stood by the entrance of the gate to the house, the five spies entered the house, then took the cast silver idol, along with the ephod and the teraphil. While this was happening, the priest was standing by the entrance of the gate with the six hundred men. But he wasn't just going to wait and see what happened. Instead, he went to the five, asking them what they were up to. They answered, Keep quiet, put your hand over your mouth and come with us, and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be the priest to the house of one person, or to be the priest to a tribe and clan in Israel? And just like that, the priest accepted their offer, taking the ephod, teraphim, and the idol, and joined them on the march to Laish. Then the story mentions something a bit unexpected. The 600 Danite men resumed their journey, putting the little ones, the livestock, and the goods in front of them. The little ones, meaning their children. All along, the text has made no mention of the warriors' families joining them, at least until now. An easy assumption is that the men didn't just bring their kids, but also their wives and potentially all of their families. Why? It certainly would make settling in their new home easier if they didn't have to make the journey back to retrieve everything. But the Danites weren't quite off the hook. Just after they left Micah's house, he got wind of what was going on. When the hundreds of Danites were some unspecified distance from Micah's house, Micah's neighbors called out, then overtook the Danites. At some point, they chased after them, too. Micah and his fellows would catch up with the Danites, where Micah confronted the amassed warriors. Before he could say anything, they got the first word in. What is the matter that you come up with such a company? Meaning all his neighbors that rushed to his assistance. 
Micah replied, You take my gods that I made, and the priest, and go away, and what do I have left? How then can you ask me, what is the matter? The Danites were going to have nothing to do with Micah and replied, You had better not let your voice be heard among us, or else hot-tempered fellows will attack you, and you will lose your life in the lives of your household. The ancient version of the golden rule. Sort of. That golden rule, at least then, was he who has the gold makes the rules. In this case, it was more of whoever had superior numbers and weapons tended to make the rules. Rules like taking possessions and recruiting away household priests. After this extremely brief confrontation, the 600 armed Danites went their own way. And Micah? Well, he quickly made the wise decision that they were too strong for him. So he turned around and went back to his home. Soon after this, the Danites finally came upon Laish, where the people remained quiet and unsuspecting. Dan attacked, literally putting them to the sword, then burned down the city. That last part was surprising. If they planned on moving there, why'd they burn it down? No explanation is provided. More detail, though, is given. No one came to rescue the people of Laish, as they were still too far from Sidon and had no other allies, just as the spies had reported. The Danites rebuilt the city and changed its name to that of the tribe, a name it holds to this day. And in this case, that means through the modern era. Though the modern place is actually a small town and near the tell where the ancient city was located. Details. More on that in a later episode. There's a bit more to the story, something that's really forward-looking. The text relays that the Danites set up the idol for themselves. Jonathan, the son of Gershom, who was the son of Moses, and this Jonathan's sons, were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the time the land went into captivity. These priests maintained Micah's idol, as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. So, let me unpack all of that in about a minute. First, Gershom is also said in some sources to have been the son of Manasseh, and it makes a difference. Moses was of the tribe of Levi, and his brother Aaron was the first high priest. Earlier in the chapter, this priest was referred to as a Levite, so, being a descendant of Moses makes sense. Manasseh, though, doesn't make as much sense, but it wouldn't be completely unexpected. Next, whichever tribe these priests were from, they would watch over the idols until the Danites went into the captivity. This was likely the Babylonian captivity, which was between about 597 and 539 B.C., what this means is that the history recorded in this part of the text was written after that date. What to make of this? It could mean that the entire book of Judges was written at that much later time, or maybe a passage as small as this verse and the few around it, though it does bring an additional perspective on the frequent phrase to this day. There are many researchers that believe and partially attributable to this part of the text. Anyway, they believe that the book of Judges was written sometime around the 6th century BC, during the Babylonian captivity itself, 
it certainly makes you wonder. And that's Judges 18. Chapter 19 switches gears again. So it goes with the book trying to tie the history of the period from just after the wanderings and settlement in Canaan with what's to follow. We're reminded that in those days there was no king in Israel, implying that at some point later there would be a king. Also, another clue that the book was written at some point in the future. Then, an unnamed Levite who lived in what's called the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim took in a concubine from Bethlehem. At some point, this unnamed concubine became angry with him and left, traveling back to her father's house in Bethlehem. Four months would pass before her husband went looking for her, he took with him his servant and a couple of donkeys, planning to speak to her tenderly. Which is an odd detail to add, until you think about how most men of the era might have acted, not tenderly, but ordering, or maybe even dragging her home kicking and screaming, or something like that. Different days. But he didn't. He planned to sweet-talk her. Upon reaching her father's house, the girl's father saw him and came with joy to meet him. His father-in-law coaxed him into staying at his house for three days. While there, they ate and drank, all seeming to get along. On the fourth day, he got up early in the morning and prepared to leave. But the father-in-law said to him, Re-energize yourself with a bit of food, and after that you may go. Then the dad-in-law said to the man, why not spend the night and enjoy yourself? He kept urging the Levite to stay. This back and forth went back and forth for the next several days. Every day the Levite would try to leave, and every day the father-in-law would talk him into staying for six days. Finally, on that sixth day, and even though it had gotten late, the Levite decided to depart with his wife, servant, and a couple of saddled donkeys they would travel as far as the city of Jebus, which was likely the name that the city of Jerusalem was going by at that time. When they got there, the servant spoke up, asking the Levite to take a break from their traveling and spend the night in the city. The Levite wasn't listening, telling the servant, and presumably his wife, we will not turn aside into a city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel but we will continue on to Jibia. Remember, it wouldn't be until much later that David would capture Jerusalem. Back in the text, the man told his servant, Instead, let us try to reach one of these places and spend the night in Jibia, or Ramah. So they went on their way, and the sun went down on them near Jibia, which was in the territory of Benjamin. They then traveled further, to the city of Jibia, where they planned on spending the night. The man went in and sat down in the open square of the city, but no one took them in to spend the night, meaning he went to the city square, hoping to find either someone who would take them in out of sheer hospitality, or perhaps an innkeeper, but no luck. Late day turned to evening, and along with that, there was an old man coming in from his work in the field. The man was originally from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was residing in Jibia. 
At this point, we are again reminded that Jibia was controlled by the Benjaminites. There's something else in here, that it wasn't terribly uncommon for people to live outside of their home territories. A Levite could be home almost anywhere, but an Ephraimite tilling the ground in Benjamin, apparently not unheard of either. Back in Jibia, when the old man looked up and saw the wayfarer in the open square of the city, he said, Where are you going, and where did you come from? The Levite answered him, We are passing from Bethlehem and Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, from which I come. I went to Bethlehem and Judah, and I am going to my home. Nobody has offered to take me in. We, your servants, have straw and fodder for our donkeys, with bread and wine for me and the woman, and the young man along with us. We need nothing more. The old man replied, Peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So the old man brought the travelers into his house and fed the donkeys. They washed their feet and ate and drank. But it wasn't going to be a peaceful night. While they were there enjoying themselves at the old man's house, the men of the city, described in the text as being a perverse lot, surrounded the house and started pounding on the door. They said to the old man, Bring out the man who came into your house, so that we may. And I'm going to skip over the next part. Let's just say what they told the old man that they were going to do to the Levite would make me lose my clean rating on iTunes. And the still unnamed old man went out to them and said, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man is my guest, do not do this vile thing. The old man proposed a solution that involved his own daughter and the Levite's wife. Still too much for this podcast. And if you're thinking this story sounds vaguely familiar, it is very similar to the story of Lot found in Genesis 19. The old man was begging the Benjaminites of Gibea to leave the traveling Levite alone. But the men would not listen to him. So the Levite threw his own wife out of the house to the raging mob. And what happened next is also too much for this forum. The next morning, as the sun began to break, perhaps at the first crow, the mob let her go. She made her way back to the house, falling down at the door. When her husband, now referred to as her master, got up and opened the door, as he was leaving to begin the next part of his journey home, He found his wife lying on the threshold. He then told her to get up as it was time to leave, but she was unresponsive. The Levite put her on a donkey, then set out to finish his trip home. When he got there, he did yet another thing I can't repeat. Let's just say he made sure all of the Israelite tribes received a stark message about what the Benjaminites had done to his wife. As part of his message, he asked the other tribes, Has such a thing ever happened since the day the Israelites came up from the land of Egypt until this day? Consider it, take counsel, and speak out. What happened next? That will have to wait until next week, as I'm running short on time. Join me then, when I'll hopefully finish my summary of the book of Judges. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com.
this week. Help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.